interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. Three young singers who soared to the heights of show business on the current rock and roll craze were killed today in the crash of a light plane in an Iowa snow flurry. The singers were identified as Richie Ballin, 17, Buddy Holly, 22, and J.P. Richardson, known professionally as the Big Bopper. The aircraft chartered from the Dwyer Flying Service crashed near Mason City, ironically the setting for the prominent musical The Music Man. The pilot, Roger Peterson of Clear Lake, Iowa, was also killed. The three singers had appeared at the surf ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa last night and were on their way to Fargo, North Dakota. Their small chartered plane crashed in a lonely farmyard about 15 miles northwest of Mason City. Cause of the crash was due to inclement weather conditions. Details upcoming from Action Central News. He was the brainchild behind the ultimate teen love anthem of Donna and the smash hit La Bamba. Richie Valens, aka Richie Valenzuela, was the famous Mexican-American singer and songwriter of all time, one of the forefathers of rock and roll and pioneer of the Chicano rock movement. But unfortunately, Valens' life came to an untimely end when Valens, along with famous rockers Buddy Holly and the big bopper Richardson, were tragically killed in a horrific plane crash in Fargo on February 3rd, 1959. It was known as the day that music died. Tune in as we sit down and talk about the life and career of Richie Valens with Bacoima's documentarian, historian, and even author and head of the Historical Society of Bacoima, Crystal Jackson. Tune in as she also gives us a little history lesson of the city of Pacoima. The paranormal aftermath. We take a deeper dive and look inside the premonitions that Richie Valens received before his untimely death. And we speak with Crystal in regards to local urban legends connected to Pacoima, one of which includes Gravity Hill. We travel to Iowa as we venture through the surf ballroom, the last venue where Valens, Holly, and the Big Bopper did their last show. What are the unexplainable activities that the staff and patrons have experienced within the ballroom? And what lingers in the Iowa airfield, which was the site of the crash? So join us, guys, as we head beyond the Hollywood city limits and travel to the San Fernando Valley. Join us as we go back in time to the 40s as we learn about the earlier life of Richie Valenzuela. Let's time warp to the 50s as we take a ride down Venice Boulevard and then head on over to Fillmore as we learn more about Richie's career in music. Join us, friends, as we head to Pacoima and learn about the life and afterlife of Richie Valens. Side note, please excuse the sound quality of our interview with Crystal Jackson. We are true crime enthusiasts and paranerds and not sound engineers, and we do our very best to improve the sound quality of our interviews. So, in other words, don't at us. Now, let's get Holly weird.
Hey guys. Oh, hello. Welcome to Hollyweird Paranormal News. Hello. If you're new to Hollyweird Paranormal and the world of podcasting, because I know that we have some new listeners. Love it. Um, we are a Hollywood true crime and paranormal podcast where we talk about Hollywood true crime and its paranormal association, along with anything that's weird and mysterious about Hollywood and its outside areas, of course. And also things we like to eat. Of course. <laughs> That too. That's pretty weird too. <laughs> we could do a list of them. Oh, real. Oh yeah, it would it would like take up the whole episode yes. pretty much. There you go. Everyone stops listening. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're just joining us for the twentieth, tenth, fifth, eightieth time, Woo. guys, welcome. We miss you all, you Holly weirdo OGs. Of course. OG? My name is Tammy Merheb Travis. Hi, I'm Bryce Mitchell Williams. And welcome. So this season, um, we wanted to focus more on popular figures from LA. Yeah. And also popular groups, which we'll, you know, kind of bring up later on in this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we wanted to bring light a few neighborhoods that make up this crazy yet amazing city of L.A. Mm-hmm. And Boyle Heights, we see you. What you're uh... you're going to be getting your episode pretty soon. Um, another one is Pacoima. Oh, God. You mean, I mean Pacoima. I, I feel like it is our civic duty to spread the word on how to pronounce, pronounce Pacoima. It. It's Pacoima. It's Pacoima, guys. And I'm white. So, like, <laughs> if I can do it, so can so you. So can you. Bryce, before we were recording <laughs> this episode, was playing this video for me. And the individual that was narrating could not pronounce it. At all. I heard Pacoima. What was that? I can't remember the bad one. Pacoima. Pacoimia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They emphasize Pacoimia. the last phrase. I get it. Look, when you move here to L.A. from mm-hmm. Indiana, <laughs> I don't know where I'm pulling that reference from. <laughs> um, every even like lightly Hispanic sounding word is terrifying. You're just like, La Jola, La Cienega. Like they all just look like a foreign language and you don't know yes. what you're talking about. And everyone's putting the word the in front of the freeway names. And it's very intimidating. <laughs> And then you've been here for 10 years and are super jaded and it is second nature to you and you like making fun of people who are new. <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah. The Bryce Mitchell Williams story. Oops. Well, we got you covered. Pacoima. Got you, Pacoima. Yeah, we're representing. So we are so excited to be bringing you this episode because we wanted to focus on another musical figure this time and that is... Richie Valens, yes. who was one of the four fathers of rock and roll and a pioneer of Chicano rock, but most of all, he is Bacoima's son. And while researching the late great musician, Richie Valens, we wanted to know more about mm. the singer and his music and his community, which is so important. Mm-hmm. And it's a community that to this very day still celebrates his music and his life. And so I started to research his birthplace of Pacoima, and learned through Historical Society of Pacoima website that Pacoima is not just a dot in the San Fernando Valley. It's a city rich with history, culture, community, art, and this is just my take. Uh, Antonio's Tacos and Kebabs, just saying, because when my husband and I did Ciclavia last year, we stopped and got some tacos tacos over there, and it was... Oh my God, tacos sounds so good, you guys. I know, tacos, menudo... My roommates just got married last weekend, Uh as we were discussing on the way in, and they had for their dinner, uh, complete tangent, uh, a taco bar, and I had so many tacos. I had like 10 tacos, Mm -hmm. I think, roughly. (laughs) 
That sounds about right. Yeah. It, it was so brutal. I was so full. But then you dance it off. So it was like yeah. fine. And like it 40 minutes later, I wanted more tacos. Yeah. Ugh, but it was the best wedding food. Who knew tacos were such good wedding food? There are. Perfect. <laughs> They're good for any occasion. Literally, I never don't want a taco. There's never a time <laughs> where I'm like, no, I'm good. I don't need tacos. So I'm coming for you, Pacoima. <laughs> so in order to learn more about Richie Valens, we needed to get to know more about Richie mm-hmm. Valenzuela, of course. We need to know more about his community and his neighborhood, his support system, and Bacoima in its own right. So in order to do that, we reached out to someone who not only grew up in Pacoima, but whose family grew up with Richie Valenzuela. And that is Crystal Jackson, who Hi. leads the Historical Society of Pacoima. And last weekend, I had the pleasure and opportunity to sit down with her over the phone and interview her and just pretty much talk about her hometown of Pacoima and uh, the life and tragedy of mm-hmm. Richie Valens. So here it is. Here's our interview with uh, Crystal Jackson and a brief history on Pacoima. Hey guys, I'm sitting down with Crystal Jackson, who is the head point person of the Historical Society of Pacoima and an author in her own right and also a documentarian. So Crystal, I have you on the line. Um, welcome to Hollywood Paranormal. And just tell us a little bit about yourself and um, your duties as, uh, you know, organizing the Historical Society of Pacoima and other projects you've been um, doing and have done in the past. Well, I I started off first doing a film called Pacoima Stories, Land of Dreams. And it was a documentary on the history of Pacoima, the 1500-year history of Pacoima. And that's what kind of started me off, and I gathered a ton of photographs and I didn't want it to go to waste after the documentary. So I ended up forming, founding the Pacoima Historical Society. And basically that's a digital library to help preserve the history of Pacoima and the surrounding areas. So I started that. And then after I did the film, I thought it would be easy to do a book. But to my chagrin, it was more difficult to do a book. Yeah. Um, I have a book is coming out within the next few months. Um, it's called it's called The Entrance Poima Story, and it's like a 600-page history book with the great stories that I've come across and uh, people that I've interviewed, and uh, it, it's an exciting book. Each story within itself is, is uh, worthy of a film within itself. That's how great some of the stories are that's in there. My editor was just saying that, and was, it excited me. I mean, Richie Valens, they already did... Um, on him, but there's there's a lot more that are worthy of that too, just by the nature of the stories. Right. So. There's a, I'm, I mean, I'm looking at the website and the collections of stories, and also the icons and figures that make up Pacoima. Um, I guess we can jump right into it with the history as well. Uh, I mean, the history of Pacoima dates back. I'm looking at this to 450 AD, which is really interesting, and it just keeps on going and going and growing. Um, can you right. tell us a, a brief history of uh, Bacoima, I guess, starting from its earlier period till, I guess, now? Well, it's, it's difficult to do it briefly. I'm going to say that because the documentary had to be edited because it's so long. <laughs> I'm having the same issues with the book. Right. But basically, basically it started, uh, like like you read, at 450 A.D. Um, uh, with the Tatavian tribe. They're the tribe that's indigenous to the San Fernando Valley, Simi Valley, um, Santa Clarita Valley and Antelope Valley. So this was their territorial reign for all those years. 
<laughs> many years. And so that tribe has a very interesting story as to what ended up happening to them. They ultimately ended up getting, uh, their tribal captain, Rogeria Rocha, ended up getting evicted from his land from a former U.S. senator who moved to, um, to the valley and purchased the northern half of the San Fernando Valley. His name was Charles McClay. And Charles McClay um, was seeking his property. Uh, Rogeria Roach actually was granted um, 10 acres of land in the city of San Fernando. And he um, had great land and had natural water springs on his land. And Charles McClay was suffering from drought, and he needed that land. So he actually ended up uh, formulating, uh, I'm going to say, I won't say fabricating, but he ended up manipulating the system to get Mojiri um, Rocha evicted off the land. And he threw him out on a winter night in November of 1885 in the street. His 80-year-old wife was sick, and he, uh, Rocha ended up having to carry his wife to the San Fernando Mission, and she ended up ultimately died of pneumonia. Oh, no. So, yeah, it was it was a real tragic story, and in the Herald, you know, they people wrote about it. There was like a ton of stories, people accounting for what happened, and they thought it was horrible. But Indian could not sue a white man in those days, and Rocha was just basically SOL. But but his story was interesting. He ended up living, moving to a government land in Lopez Canyon, and um, actually lived to be 104 years old. Now Charles McClay, on the other hand. Shortly after that, ended up getting face cancer and died seven short years after that. And um, and a, a host of other bad things ended up happening. So where that lies in the in the cosmic world is unknown, but it was, you know, a very interesting story as to how everything unfolded in Poima. But that's the start of the history. And, um, and then the town was purchased by another gentleman in 18... Um, 1888, Joette Allen purchased Pacoima, and from there, Pacoima became, you know, a town within itself, mm-hmm. an official town. But he had a series of bad luck things happen to him as well. Joette Allen wanted the town, it was the first sidewalk in the San Fernando Valley was built in Pacoima. And he wanted the town to be an elite town. He wanted everyone to spend at least $2,000 on Victorian homes, which today uh, amounts to $400,000 value home, but um, he, he had saw this, but everything basically failed. A flood of 1891 wiped out the town. Uh, prior to the flood, a fire burnt down Duet Allen's house. A lot of interesting things kind of happened in that, that history, but Pacoima ultimately became agricultural town um, by 1907-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, it became agricultural town. So from there it was agricultural, and then it was determined uh, they wanted it to be the minority section of the San Fernando Valley. Um, they didn't want um, non-whites to live outside of that area. A few streets in North Hollywood allowed minorities to purchase, but the Japanese, the Mexicans, African Americans all ended up uh, being limited to land and homes in Pacoima. So that's where the, the, the interesting history starts. <laughs> right. So... In 1950, so the Japanese came um, in the early 1900s, and they were farmers and had uh, great skills in manipulating, not manipulating, cultivating the land. Um, so they had successes, but then there was laws enacted in 1913 and 1920 to limit what the Japanese, the land ownership and the alien rights, and they did all this stuff to suppress the Japanese success in the town. And then um, in the 
Mexicans that, that migrated over from Mexico were buying houses, and um, they actually, you know, a lot of them farmed the land, but over in construction work. And then in 1950, uh, they wanted, the, it was right after, the, after World War II, they needed a place to put African-Americans because Los Angeles had a shortage of housing. And African-Americans were only allowed purchase in select areas in Los Angeles, one of them being Watts. The other one was Catamount to South Central Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Outside of there, blacks weren't allowed to buy either. So they opened it up so the GI loans were accepted in Pacoima. So an influx of African-Americans came in. And from there, the story just <laughs> grows with the number of uh, people that just did amazing things, amazing things, and all the stories, like I said, within themselves are are just nothing short of jaw dropping. And I'm writing the book, and my jaw drops when I come across all these stories. I mean, they were responsible in the '60s for actually starting the Pan African Studies departments and Chicano Studies departments at the UC campuses at Cal State Northridge oh, wow. and uh, the other campuses across the country. Yeah. Started, um, they started that with the incident that happened in 1968, where they actually the, the Black Student Union actually took over um, <laughs> the administration, and it was a big deal. It involved Governor Reagan at the time, and you know it was, it was just a very interesting story. They ended up being uh, called the Valley State 19, and they ended up being prosecuted by the Charles Manson prosecutor. Oh wow! And they were, <laughs> yeah, and they were sentenced. To the uh, the most consequential sentence in the country for college activists, they got the worst sentence. They all went to jail, lost um, you know lost their credits, their ability to go back to campus. And but the good of that came, even despite what happened to those individuals, um, the, those departments, those Pan African Studies. Now it's called Africana Studies. And um, the Chicano studies and other ethnic studies were developed. And the EOP, Equal Opportunity Program, grew. So because of that sacrifice, the college campuses in the country benefited. It's an end result. I mean, I mean, out of the dark came a lot of this light that really, you know, helped improve, you know, these studies and these departments, at, you know, at these colleges and universities. So Absolutely, absolutely. And they got more professors hired there that were of color, you know, of all all color nationalities. And just a lot of, it was a difficult thing. And I actually interviewed one of the uh, people that was actually involved in that incident. And she said she wouldn't, it was horrible, but, and they lied on them. And they, you know, the stories got exaggerated. The press was against them. But despite all of that, she still doesn't regret um, helping um, achieve people of color being able to um, have more college. Resources. Yeah, that was one of the stories I'm super proud of it, with Pacoima. Uh, yeah. Not to mention, again, all the other great people that came out of Pacoima. I mean, we literally had, the list, is, the list is massive, and I hope I don't forget any. But we have, as of right now, we have two Congress people. We have a California Secretary of State. We have a State Assembly person all from Pacoima. So our political history is, is pretty good. Um, we have Congress... Congressman Tony Cardenas, we have uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who is actually right now from Oakland, but she went to San Fernando High School. You know, Secretary of State Alex Padilla, and then we have Assemblywoman Luce Rivas. So we have we have a nice, um, you know, a, a, a nice impact to what all the act, early activism did in Pacoima. But in, in addition to the politicians, there's musicians, 
There's uh, Heisman Trophy winners. We have world champion boxers, Bobby Chacon and, and Benny DeJet, your kid is, and uh, his sister, Lily Rodriguez, was a world champion boxer. Um, I mean, the, the list is just so massive. We have movie directors and producers, um, Kenya Barris, who did Blackish and um, Girls Trip and some other films out there. He, he was born in Pacoima. We even have Kurt Russell, who would never admit it, but he actually played baseball at, uh, at uh, Pacoima Junior High. Oh. <laughs> Jaw-dropping yeah. is a phrase that we can use. Also, teeth grinding, I think, could apply. I know, My right? just like fury towards fellow white people seriously Why? leave it to a white man yeah no offense but leave it to a white man you think having so many disasters and tragedies here in especially in the state of california mm-hmm. you almost think it was you know built over thousands of thousands <laughs> of acres of ancient indian burial grounds yeah it's really frustrating to hear those like stories because like in some ways they're so far removed like right like i've never done those things but like it's not that far back. When you start looking at like the actual timeline, the way that we're taught, oh, here it is. Shout out to Pam, because here I go, girl. I'm going to mm-hmm. do a real do rant. Do a real rant. We're taught this sort of like, especially the civil rights movement, as like ancient history. And it's like, no, that's like a generation removed. And like you start thinking about like the way that Native Americans were treated, and that's like three generations removed. And you start talking about like slavery in this country, and that's like four generations. Like, it's so silly because we talk about it like it's happened so long ago. And like, yeah. oh, why can't we get over this? It's like, we're not over it. We're not. Like, our grandparents were dealing with these atrocious things. And it's like, yeah, we've come a long way, mm-hmm. but not far enough to be like, yeah, get over it. Like, it just baffles me. So like, as she was telling me these like stories, mm-hmm. it's just so disheartening. Like, ugh, what a gross history we have. What an amazing history too, because like exactly like you said, these things that like rose up out of it are so inspiring and amazing, yeah, but God you know. damn, the things that it took to like get to those points. Yeah, maybe, you know, we needed to get to those points to, you know, as a community stand together, you know? Yeah. One might also argue, like, how much higher could they have soared had, like, white people not stolen from them? But, like, exactly. sure, 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 True, sure. true, true, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, Ugh. like she said, you know, in the 60s, we had mm. those two departments instilled. Like, people fought for African-American mm-hmm. studies and Chicano studies. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, just saying it, this town was built by immigrants. Yeah, literally. I mean, it's just so... I'll from everywhere we have mexican americans mm-hmm. african americans korean americans japanese and chinese americans because those were the ones that actually helped us with the railroad yeah. just just thing yeah. we had the dutch can't forget them we had yeah. jews we had i mean it really is such everyone an amalgam of like culture and you know mm-hmm. yeah it's very frustrating so like yeah you you even said as i was listening i'm just sitting here like because it's like so frustrating to hear those parts of our history but then like the things that come out of them and mm-hmm. All like those, a phoenix riding, uh, rising out of his ashes. Yeah, and all those like representatives that she was mentioning. Absolutely, like, I love them. And, and sports figures. Yeah, and, it's so amazing. And of but, course, we cannot forget Bokoyama's son, Richie Valens. That old so-and-so. That old so-and-so. So that was a brief history of Bokoyama and the stellar figures that came out of that little town. Bokoyama in itself is a diverse little city, not to mention even in the early 1900s, the first African-American mm-hmm. restaurant was established there, Lee's Restaurant. 
So we're going to jump ahead, guys, and we're going to explore more of the life and afterlife of Richie Valens, of course. So you know how we do, guys. We will first go over Richie's early life, his career, and Bryce will cover February 3rd, 1959, the tragic day when the music died, when three of rock and roll's important figures, Valens, Buddy Holly, and Big Bopper Richardson perished in a tragic plane crash. Then the moment you've all been wondering, is there a paranormal association? We'll go over Richie's premonition and the conspiracy theories of the horrific plane crash. And are there Richie Fallon ghosts? What the workers of the surf ballroom has reported after seeing um, what they feel are apparitions, mm. along with what people have reported seeing over the field, which was the site of the crash. And Crystal Jackson will also deliver some of Pacoima's local legends. One in particular is Gravity Hill. So in order to begin, guys, we need to go back. We need to go back to Pacoima in 1941. So Valens was born Richard Stephen Valenzuela on May 13th of 1941 in Pacoima, California. His parents, Joseph Stephen Valenzuela and Concepcion Concha Reyes, were from Mexico. So he was the second of five siblings with older brother Bob Morales, younger sisters Connie and Irma, and younger brother Mario Ramirez. And Richie was brought up hearing traditional Mexican mariachi music followed by some flamenco guitar, R&B, and some jump blues. And Richie expressed an interest in making music of his own by the age of five. And he was encouraged by his father to take up and learn the guitar and trumpet. And then later, Richie even taught himself how to play the drums. Though Richie was left-handed, he was so eager to learn to play the guitar and master it traditionally right-handed, which is very impressive. So by the time Richie was attending junior high school, he would bring his guitar to school and sing and play songs to his friends on the bleachers. And when he was 16 years old, he was invited to join a local band called The Silhouettes. And this is not the group famous for the hit song, Get a Job, but he began as a guitarist. And when the main vocalist left the group, Richie assumed the position. So on October 19th of 1957, he made his performing debut with The Silhouettes. And he was getting so much recognition from it. And people were just like going crazy over him. So by this time, everyone knew of his musical talents and everyone knew of his fear. You see, Richie had a fear of flying and he had a fear of planes. The interesting thing about his story was Richie's fear of flying and Richie's fear of planes that was actually brought on by a premonition. Yes, Richie knew deep down inside that flying in a plane would be his final destination. Crystal explains it all here, along with all the other details of his life and career. So let's jump into it. I was lucky enough to have the experience and the information from both my parents. My father lived on the same street as Richie Valens, and my mother lived around the corner This was, you know, when they were younger. And they actually graduated. Graduated in 1958, uh, a year before Richie was scheduled to graduate. But he came and played at her um, in their garage time. He always walked around with his guitar, and he came and um, they were friends. They all, they all hung out. Oh wow! And yeah, and he and he always talked about he was afraid of planes. And the reason he was afraid was because not long, not far from the homes was Whiteman Airport. At that time, it was called Whiteman Air Park. 
but it was uh, right across the way, and there was a lot of low-flying planes that were pretty intimidating. Because I'll tell you, we lived um, with my mom. We lived right across the street for a while from the airport. And as a fun thing for us as kids, she used to let the planes, like, fly over our heads. She stopped the car when she saw a plane was coming, and the plane would fly over. But there was a lot of low, small craft, small aircraft, but there was a lot there. And that's what uh, we were told frightened I was told. And um, I interviewed another lady named Irene Diaz, and she went to school with him from elementary all the way to high school. And she said he always talked about he didn't like planes. So then what happened was in 1957, um, at McCormick Junior High was getting ready for their graduation. And um, he was at his grandfather's Frank Reyes' funeral, and two aircraft crashed. It's actually, they actually crashed Hampton Dam, but the plane debris fell on Pacoima Junior High and the neighboring Talabera Elementary. And one of Richie's friends was injured, and, and he had already had premonitions, and this just exasperated everything, his whole fear of flying, um, based on that that crash. And it was it was a big it was a big deal at that time because it was actually um, air uh, not Air Force, but it was military plane that was doing conducting some sort of experiment over populated areas and crashed with another plane midair and that should have never happened. Oh, and so no. the and the president got involved, I believe it was I wanna say Roosevelt, I could be wrong, but the president got involved and they actually had to go through a series of hearings as to why they were flying over populated areas. But, you know, it still didn't negate the fact that Richie, you know, it really affected him the worst of anybody. Right. And of course, even reading here that like eight children were killed in this accident. That's horrible. Yeah, well, it was actually, it was eight people died. It was three children and it was uh, oh. the, other, the aircraft people. Oh, my goodness. The airmen. Yeah, so it actually, in, in retrospect, but 74 kids got uh, injured. You know, oh, so it was so still terrible. pretty bad. One of the ladies... Um, that was a pay article I read. She said her house smelled like gasoline for days. Oh. Get the smell out, you know. And I can imagine how how horrifying that would be. But because when she was in her house, the windows were crashing all around, and debris was flying. She had to guard her kids from from doing it. So it was pretty. You know, it was pretty violent. I mean, what a place to live if you have a fear of planes and flying when you're living close to a field, and then this happens. I mean, that poor. Those poor kids, and also poor Richie, you know, he's, like, anxiety-driven at this point with this accident and living next to this airfield. This is, this is crazy. Um, I know. And what a, what a time to live in and what an area to live in, especially with this tragedy as well. So right. And he had the premonition, and it made him not want to fly once he became um, – a musician and he got he got discovered by Bob King from Delphi Records and all of a sudden he just blew up like instantly it seemed like he was on American Bandstand he did a movie Go Go and he he, he couldn't even go to high school anymore because he was just going traveling and doing all kind of stuff yeah he was working it, at the age of 17 like he was like a musician by then already well think about it in eight, he was only on the national scene for eight months mm-hmm but look at the recognition, a 17-year-old that's only been, you know, did he only did, uh, I think it was one national song, the rest didn't make the national charts. Oh, 
but you know a lot of people know of him but they still he didn't do um a lot he didn't have a long career but yet he's the most popular icon in Pacoima you know people love Richie Valens of course yeah i mean he, he, there are murals still painted of him all over you know certain areas of Los Angeles and i'm sure from what i've seen in pictures like especially in Pacoima they still honor right. him and his legacy of course um let's talk about uh your family members too like uh wh how was richie growing up like what type of teenager he was well my mom described him as just a happy happy boy she said he was a chubby boy <laughs> but everybody loved him she said literally nobody had a dislike for richie Aww. that was the general consensus and my dad hung out with him you know because he hung up in my mom's garage and she just had nothing but things to say and she mentioned when they heard they knew he was going on tour and when they heard it, the plane crash she just like they just looked at each other they didn't even know how to how to process that information because he was so endeared to the entire community so you know they just said he was he was fun you know to be around and um you know they did but good things to say about him. everyone that that i interviewed had nothing but good things to say about him Aww. And yeah, um, his house is still standing off of Fillmore, right? There's a house there from Fillmore, but from my, my research, which I didn't know, the house on Fillmore, they actually, the mom lost that house. Oh, um, no. Ended up losing that house, and they moved to Gain Street. And apparently that particular house on Gain Street is the one that the family still owns. And they actually have the living room set up as a shrine to Richie. Doesn't that give you goosebumps? Yeah, it's so crazy. But isn't that sweet how like people remembered him growing no. up as being this happy, jolly, and yes, chubby, chubby boy. Sure, sure. <laughs> baby fat. No, it's just baby fat. It's just his mom's love. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking about love, let's move on to Richie's first love. Let's come, uh, come out of this uh, world of premonitions mm. and crashes and into a little bit of light right here. You see, uh, Richie was in love, and he had a first love. Bryce, don't you remember your first love? Uh, pizza? Well, was yes. It, it was pizza. That's right? my only love, yes. <laughs> Me, it was New Kids on the Block. Ooh. Yeah, Joe McIntyre. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Now... Another thing everyone knew about Richie is that he was in love, and he did have a first love. And during high school, Richie meets a PYT, this little pretty young thing, named Donna Ludwig. Yes. And that girl will forever be the chorus and title of one of his most memorable songs, Key Music. <laughs> so, in 1957, Richie and Donna met at a garage party where Richie was playing, and it was love at first sight. They were high school sweethearts, and they dated for two years, and then they end up breaking up because of rumors that, you know, Donna's dad didn't approve of Richie, and then I heard other stories that they just mutually broke up. Mm. But that didn't stop the both of them from still continuing a friendship and also communicating with one another. Richie would write to her every single day while he was on tour and call her to sing to her. And he also wrote the hit romantic song, Donna. Now, in an interview Donna Ludwig Fox did with RichieValens.com, she shares her little story. 
Richie was my first true love and my first experience losing someone I loved. Mm -hmm. Richie was truly a really good guy, kind and polite. He liked to dress well and always look good. I still remember his aftershave Old Spice. Mm -hmm. Richie spoke often about his family and he wanted to buy his mom a home. And Richie's mom and I grew very, very close. She made me feel like family, and she even taught me how to cook Richie's favorite foods. Tamales, menudo, Ooh. and enchiladas. I mean, no wonder he was chubby, right? Girl, Girl so I mean, bad. look, when your mom is cooking that, <laughs> you don't worry about the weight, right? No. no. So Richie's family has also influenced me and my family by showing me that with love and support mm. of family, nothing is too difficult. And they are a true blessing to me and my family. Donna was actually a really good comfort to Richie's mom and sisters after Richie's death. And Donna has attended the Winter Dance Party concert for the last several years as a special guest. Aww. And her graciousness to Richie's fans and support of Richie's family still continues to show the bond that was created almost 60 years ago, which is really, really sweet. So sweet. And if you go on RichieValens.com, you can see pictures of her, what she looked like. She was a beautiful young thing, yeah. blonde, blue-eyed. And there's pictures of her, like, after that tragic day, mm. sitting in his room oh, with all of his guitars, playing the 45 Donna. I mean, you could tell, like, she was really, really distraught. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, you could tell, like, in the pictures, like, it oh. just, it told a story. Yeah. Now, moving forward to his stardom, as Crystal Jackson described in mm. The last interview right there, Bob King, the owner and president of small record label Delphi Records in Hollywood, was given a tip in May of 1958 by San Fernando High School student Doug Machia about a young performer from Pacoima named Richard Valenzuela. Kids knew the performer as the Little Richard of San Fernando. Huh. Now, swayed by the Little Richard comparison, Keen went to see Valenzuela play a Saturday morning matinee at a movie theater in San Fernando, and impressed by the performance, he invited Richie to audition at his home in Silver Lake, which is a little area of Los Angeles where he had a small recording studio in his basement. So after his first audition, Keen instantly signed Richie to Delphi on May 27th of 1958. At this point, the musician took the name Richie because as Keen said, there were a bunch of Richards around at the time and I wanted to be different. I wanted him to be different. And similarly, Keen recommended shortening his surname to Valens from Valenzuela to widen his appeal beyond any obvious ethnic group as Crystal describes in our next interview, which, uh, <sighs> I mean, this was the 50s, of course. Sure, sure. But I feel like that's still echoed today, too. Oh, God, yes. Like, look at, like, Selena, for example. Selena Quintanilla or Selena y los Dinos. It's just now Selena, you know? Mm -hmm. But still, it still echoes that to this day. Mm -hmm. After several songwriting and demonstration recording sessions with Keen in his basement studio, Keen decided that Richie was ready to enter the studio with a full band backing him. So the first songs recorded in studio were Come On, Let's Go. Valen's next record was a double A-side, the final record to be released in his life. Lifetime, and it had the song Donna, which was coupled with La Bamba. It sold over 1 million copies and was awarded a gold disc. So by autumn of 1958, the demands of Valen's career forced him to drop out of high school, and Keane booked appearances at venues across the U.S. and, and performances on television programs. So Valens had that fear of flying due to the freak accident at his junior high, and he eventually overcomes his fear of flying when Keen tells him, 
you need to travel all mm. over the U.S. to promote. You have to do it. Mm -hmm. So he ends up flying. He ends up traveling to Philadelphia to appear on the Dick Clark's American Bandstand yes. television show on October 6th, where he sang, come on, let's go. And then he travels all over the states performing. And by December 27th, he returned to Philly again to appear on American Bandstand another time. But this time he's performing his hit tune, Donna. And in early 1959, Valens was traveling the Midwest on a multiple act rock and roll tour dubbed the Winter Dance Party. Accompanying him were Buddy Holly, Dion and the Belmonts, JP the Big Bopper Richardson, and Frank Shardo. It was going to be the biggest tour to date, and unfortunately, it would be his last. Mm -hmm. So you have the receipts on no. the crash. So basically, this tour was like... Uh, nightmare oh. <laughs> so they're driving Absolutely. around on like a, basically a slightly elevated school bus all over the midwest in february like you honestly i cannot think of a worse fate and we've talked about this in other episodes specifically yeah. the judy garland episode the jane mansfield episode any episode that talks about anyone who's famous uh but being famous at this time was really like a double-edged sword mm -hmm. you kind of are like a slave to your own fame and this is like once again no exception so basically they did 11 stops in 10 days and it was the oh first God, 11 stops of like a 32 stop tour so they're mm -hmm. like a third of the way through and you know there's like this map on one of the documentaries that I was watching and it shows like where like stop one stop two stop three and like stop one and three would be like 30 miles apart and stop four or like stop two would be 400 miles away no so they would be like on this bus no. in the February like Dakota winter oh, no. driving every single night to perform night after night so they were all super sick of course, because like it's like a nice, healthy they negative got, twenty degrees. They got frostbite on the bus. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you're getting frostbite from traveling to like perform, and like these these shows are especially, not small shows. No, no, especially like, in a vehicle. Come on. Yeah, like get them a nicer bus. God forbid. So it's like this weird thing where it's like these huge names. I mm -hmm. mean. At the time, especially if you really look at, like, where the history of rock and roll was, these are three, like, monumental names. They're all pretty young. Obviously, like, uh, J.P. Richardson was the oldest. He was 28. Like, he's the old soul on the tour. And then Buddy Holly's 22 and Richie Valens, 21 or 22, and Richie Valens is 17. So yeah. it's, like, these very, like, powerhouse names. Elvis is, like not touring at the time he's in the army like there's all these other like players in the rock and roll world who were like aren't touring or producing music at this time like this was it like this literally was the only tour happening in the country mm -hmm. for rock and roll which is insane to me but then you look at it and they're like dying in the midwestern tundra so essentially buddy holly notoriously did not want to do this tour but kind of needed the money essentially he was basically cash poor mm -hmm. as all celebrities at this time were because the studios wouldn't pay them in cash yeah especially him and big bopper were i mean they were married big yep. bopper you know is expecting a son yep. actually buddy holly was as well at the time oh yeah 
So like they need so they're like, <laughs> money. Yeah. They're rich. They're famous. And yet they're in this like school bus <laughs> driving across. Oh, jeez. Like the number, like the bus would break down. They would get frostbite. They were performing night after night. J.P. Richardson is like super sick. All of and them still are, performing. Yeah. So uh, the reason I even bring any of that up is that A, being famous is like a nightmare. B, they're all super sick and Buddy Holly is over it. So after their performance in Clear Lake, Iowa, which was the 11th stop on the tour, mm-hmm. he and his two bandmates, essentially, like, he charters a private plane. He's like, we can't keep doing this. Um, we're going to fly so that we can arrive at the next stop early and get some rest. Like, we're really sick. It's really cold. I can't be on that bus anymore. So he and his two bandmates... Um, Tommy Alsup and Wylan Jennings of mm-hmm. country music fame uh, essentially book a plane to the next stop and it's like a little puddle jumper like a four seater it's a Beechcroft Bonanza yes. which is like when you see pictures of it you're like can four people fit in really? that clown uh, car yes. of a plane it's yes. so it was so tiny, tiny. Like, I got in the back seat and like where on the back <laughs> tail like <laughs> so they essentially book this and then everyone else is gonna like bus and meet them and they're gonna mm-hmm. try and get some rest and what ends up happening is that uh wylan jennings Waylon jennings however mm-hmm. you want to say it he kind of out of like the kindness tells uh jp richardson you should take my seat you're so sick i mean he was really really sick he would like perform and come off the stage and like pass out and so um at the Clear Lake Iowa show, it's like a 1500 person show, which like is mind blowing to me. Like, where are all these people coming from? But they were like driving. Oh, they're in. driving from everywhere. This is like this huge Midwestern tour mm-hmm. of like thousand or more person venues mm-hmm. every night, which is insane. So JP Richardson's now on the plane, and the guitarist Tommy Alsup essentially, allegedly, does a coin toss with Richie Valens. And Richie Valens then takes his seat on the plane. So now, instead of Buddy Holly and his guitar, like, who he initially bought it, and he, like, notoriously was, like, making fun of them. Was like, oh, you're idiots. You shouldn't have given your seats up. Like, good luck on the bus. And um, so now it's Richie Valens, J.P. Richardson, and Buddy Holly, and the pilot, uh, somewhere on this page, uh, Roger Peterson, the four of them are now flying out of Fargo to the next stop. And essentially, there was a weather advisory, but because of the time, it was like 12.50 at night, 12.55, they don't hear it. The pilot doesn't hear it. And mm-hmm. so essentially, they all get to the flight. The tour manager drops them off kind of like wishes them well and then within five miles of so like what like roughly five minutes the plane crashes and is immediately decimated the impact is like on frozen ground and they're all instantly killed and so essentially the i know it's so it's just so so quick and tragic and yeah and after the crash like it took how long for people to finally find them so on one of the interviews i was watching the tour manager he was like a a, 
he would do like interviews mm-hmm. and he like interrupted the interview that he was doing promoting the tour read a news point bulletin saying like a plane had crashed outside of Fargo it doesn't even cross his mind and he continues on with the tour promotion oh, no. and it was after that interview that they're like this that you just read and he's like no that's not them and it was and they're like no it's it's, it's Buddy them. and Richie and JP and like he didn't even know and then like because of again the sort of like little care that the studios took with the lives and sort of courtesy of the stars and their family the family members start finding out because the news is reporting it they like didn't even get a phone call or like were being like no that's not true that's not true and it's like being reported on the news so like all of Richie Valens family finds out from like friends or from the radio station none of them were like called and told so it's like this like weird piecing together of like is it true is it not true it was like the worst way it could have been handled and on top of all of that they continue the tour which like blows my mind so Wyland Jennings (laughs) basically has to take over for Buddy Holly and like other players in the tour fill in and are like being Loki forced to sing the songs of like their three friends and like in the interviews they all talk about it like they couldn't like the three best people on that tour were killed like they were the nicest they were the most talented they were like the brightest stars and then we were being forced to like go on with the tour go on dress up Mm -hmm. you know put on a show face Mm -hmm. and you know just sing the tunes and they were they were just like are you serious for 20 for 20 more shows yeah well the show must go on it's Mm -hmm. like but the opening groups of these shows like they all died yeah so then you know it's sort of this weird thing i kind of briefly mentioned it but it's sort of weird lull in rock and roll history because all of these like a the three arguably biggest rock and roll stars at the time are now dead Mm -hmm. elvis is in the army and when he gets back out of the army his career sort of like tanks and then we kind of enter into like Vegas era Elvis which you know no judgments mm-hmm. um, you've got people who are you know Jerry Lee Lewis is embroiled in scandal for marrying his minor cousin mm-hmm. minor aged cousin excuse me so it's like these big names in the rock and roll world there's like this void almost and there's no sort of recollection or memory it's like everyone forgets that these three men existed that their music existed and then in the wake of that the Beatles come sorry you're getting some like light music history and it that takes over like the UK that, invasion yes. completely circumvents That's and it's the like, 60s right there yeah and mm-hmm. it's like this huge wave there was like this void of rock and roll the Beatles come in it's this new era and it literally is like these bygone decades where like the three arguably most contributing members to early rock and roll are nearly forgotten and then flash forward and um don mclean writes american pie in 1971 based on the tragedy of the plane crash which they had in that time those two-ish decades named the day music dies Mm -hmm. and he writes it and it sort of creates this revival Thank God. That we're still now benefiting from. Yes. Where people were like, oh, right. Like, their their songs live on. But, like, it was because of his song 
it almost like jarred people awake and were like, oh, right, like these three men were like such young, bright stars that were snuffed out. And it sort of created like a renaissance of their music and, yeah. you know, following that shortly with their induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I don't know, it was just like such, I find that so weird that it's like not only was the plane crash so devastating and like quick and tragic and weird that they all three ended up on the plane. It was like everyone forgot about it for 20 years. And then we're like, oh, right. Oh, right. Here's, oh, these were the three mm-hmm. forefathers of rock and yeah. roll. So I don't know. I just. It's so it's true. So yeah. I mean, even in his lyric of uh, Don McLean's mm-hmm. song, you, my favorite verse in that song is, um, those boys got the last train to the coast. It was the father, the son, and the Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. Father being Big Bopper, the son, Richie Valens, mm-hmm. and the Holy Ghost is Buddy Holly. Yeah. That whole mm-hmm. like chorus, like that line gives me goosebumps to this very day. But you're so right. I mean, it's like kind of like they were here and then they were forgotten. And then all of a sudden it took like a musician to show these people that these other musicians mm-hmm. existed. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the movies with, like Gary Busey and... The oh Richie yeah, Allen's movie, which we're going to talk. We're going to talk about, but real quickly, what I wanted to touch is the conspiracies uh, of the crash. Yeah, sorry, I just wanted is... to talk about like the semi-verifiable facts. Oh yeah, no, of <laughs> course, because those are facts that need to be like you know told. But let's talk about some conspiracies. conspiracies because it just seems like even though these men were forgotten, the mm. crash wasn't forgotten. Right. It was still a cold case. So there were a lot of conspiracy theories that are attached to this tragedy, which I felt really bad for whoever is connected to these three individuals. It's like, you can't let these poor gentlemen rest in peace. Mm-hmm. So conspiracy theorists at its best discovered a silver bullet theory. I don't know if you heard about Mm-mm. this one. So the silver bullet theory is this. Buddy Holly gets into an argument with the pilot, Roger Peterson. And Holly has a gun because he's from Texas and everyone in Texas has a gun. And he can confirm. <laughs> he shoots Peterson and possibly the big bopper. So this theory grew into a tall tale because a few weeks after the crash, the owner of the field where the plane crash found the gun. Mm. So he finds his gun, he turns it into the police, and then they discover that it's Holly's gun. They turn it into an investigator, but before the investigator touches it, um, it is later discovered that the gun had been fired twice. Mm. So there are all these theories. Oh, like, so was it fired while they were in the air? Mm-hmm. Like, what happened? And it turned out that the sheriffs that had the gun in the first place after it was turned in had used it for, like, I guess, shooting practice. Ugh, sure. Forensic evidence be damned. Uh-huh. But rumors were still coming out of the woodwork since Aww. 1959 that the big bopper survived the initial impact of the crash and tried to, like, run out for help. Skeptics of the official conclusion say that um, all victims died on impact, but Richardson's body was the only one found a significant distance from Mm. the wreckage because his body was found about 40 feet away from the crash. So another rumor was that the bopper had suffered a gunshot wound Mm. and was trying to run for help, but died due to the wound and the, you know, the forces of like the weather. Mm -hmm. So in 2007, it took the big bopper's son to do a special to debunk this rumor. So he hires Dr. Bill Bass, founder of the University of Tennessee Anthropological Research Facility. Mm -hmm. And they investigate the rumors by exhuming 
his father's body. Oh, no. So Bass concluded by examining x-rays of the body that there was no evidence of gunshot wounds and that the bopper's massive injuries made it impossible, impossible for him to have moved his own body. Yeah. So in this interview, he states, like, I'm looking at the x-rays and this poor man endured 200 fractures Uh. from his, like, the top of his skulls all the way to his toes. Mm. Yes, yeah, so there was just no way that he could have survived this crash. And second, there was no gunshot wound. Oof. And it was sad because like what was so morbid but yet bittersweet is you can find this video too mm-hmm. on YouTube. Is you see Big Bopper's son like meeting his dad for the first time in this coffin. Aww. Because he was born. And, right, and he was he, born after the plane after crash. After the crash. So it's like you're seeing this happen. This reunion between father and son. Oh. And it's very bittersweet because, like, you're thinking, oh, he's, like, he's going to freak out. No, mm. he's just, like, it, it It was just a nice reunion. You can see him, like, praying and saying something under his breath. Yeah. But according to Dr. Bass, like, his body was miraculously well-preserved as well. Damn. So, yeah, you could find that video on YouTube. Let's see. Another theory was that someone shot down the plane. <laughs> someone shot down the plane. With what? Exactly. Someone shot down the plane. That was another theory that was like like swimming around. Third theory was that Buddy Holly was flying the plane. He paid off the pilot and they were drinking and Buddy Holly was drinking and crashed the plane. Hmm. So that was another theory. But according to reports, reports did conclude that the crash was caused by pilot Roger Peterson's decision to fly in bad weather without appropriate instrument Mm -hmm. training, which may have led him to misread a gauge and mistakenly fly the beach bonanza into the ground in a steep right bank. Now, the report also notes that Peterson was not told just before takeoff that the weather conditions had worsened. But in 2015, this case is still brought into light. According to Guardian.com, in 2015, federal safety investigators have indicated that they are considering a request to re-examine the accident. The request came from LJ Kuhn, a pilot who has made his own investigation into the crash and has approached the National Transportation Safety Board's cold case unit, urging them to take another look. So Kuhn believes that the finding of the civil aeronautics board in 1959 that the accident was primarily caused by pilot error amounts to an injustice for roger peterson the pilot Mm. so the flight expert is encouraging federal investigators to consider other factors that could help explain the disaster he points to a possible weight imbalance in the craft peterson and holly upfront weighed about 160 pounds each while valens and richardson were considerably a little heavier newly installed flight instruments as well as a possible commotion among the passengers shortly after takeoff is still an ongoing investigation interesting yes i wonder like what i mean i guess you know in pursuit of the truth but like what does that prove i guess Mm -hmm. that like he just wasn't at fault yes he felt that there was an injustice with the pilot like, I'm a fellow pilot, and I want to step into the light and defend Roger. Because a lot of people were blaming the pilot. There were rumors yeah. that he was drunk. There was rumors that he wasn't well-trained. And there were rumors that he was, that he should have known. You know, yeah. people were trying to figure out the cause of this crash, and they blamed the pilot. It's interesting, because, like, as we were, like, learning about this, I guess I just immediately jumped to the weather I was like, oh, like, it's so sad that, like, he didn't get the memo that, like, the weather had, like, d- 
deteriorated. That's so the I, it, thing. it never even crossed my mind that he was like at fault. I just consider him a fellow victim. So I didn't. I agree. Because there was in one of the interviews, um, the one guy was like, I wouldn't have put them on the plane if he hadn't been a capable pilot. And I was like, that's a weird sound bite. Like, it's like this one off thing. Mm-hmm. Like, why did they put that in there? That now makes more sense. Because this is like, I think it was like in the 80s that this was filmed based on just, I don't know, the hairstyles alone. Um, <laughs> but. I, like as I was watching, I was like, "Why did he say that? Like, what is he even referencing?" Um, so that does make a lot of sense. But like when I was like reading it and watching and like looking at all the plane crash footage, I was like, "Oh God, he just didn't know how bad the weather was." And like that, God, that plane is so tiny. It's tiny. as big as this kitchen. And it table. was a like, snowstorm, and yeah. everyone's like, "No, that was his fault." But you have to understand too. To be fair, mm. this is 1959. Yeah, aeronautics is still not as advanced as it is today. Right. And the ways of communication back then were literally slow. Yeah. They moved at a glacial pace. Yeah. And they needed to get out. They wanted to leave. And he was like, okay, I guess like, I guess it might clear up. Yeah. Oh, that makes me sad. It, it does. And it's like, at the end of the day, that person also has family that exactly. like, has lost a family member. Like, I don't know. That's really sad. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. The weather, the weight of the plane, the condition of the plane, and also quite possibly, yes, he was most likely still green. Yeah. You know, I mean, the he pilot. He was only 21. He was 21. He, you know, just got his, like, you know, training and everything. And mm. this was advanced flying for him, in my opinion. Yeah. And look what well, happened. Well, it's just hard, too, because, like, there's this sort of thing, I think, that happens where as the only non-famous member of the victims list, it's mm-hmm. very easy to, like... Point a finger to And blame. to exile him. You know what I mean? Yes, like, which I think well, is not right. these three, like, stars died, and this, like, nobody. It's like, well, calm down. Like, there's still a person dead, and, like... And I give it to Pacoima because Aww. I went to this location in Pacoima off of Mural Avenue, or mm. Mural Row. It's off of one... 3433 Van Nuys Boulevard mm-hmm. but you can see the mural of Richie Valens, Buddy Holly, Big Bopper and they added oh, that's the really pilot yeah. Roger Peterson they added him there which I thought was really nice he's on the memorial at the last venue they performed at oh as wonderful well. he is like below them but it's like all part of the same statue right. and like there's one in the actual field that he's a part of as well right so which sweet. that was very very sweet now we can move forward with the hit film, La Bamba, guys. I mean, I just want to commemorate us. I've been really fighting against singing that this whole episode. <laughs> Good for us. I would love to hear you sing it. I want to sing, you just it sing so, so You're going to sound so white. I know. Oh, well, I would be meowing it the whole time. You know, I, you know my only meow song. So. Well, guys, uh, La Bamba is a 1987 American biographical film written and directed by Luis Valdez that follows the life and career of Chicano rock singer, of course, Richie Valens. The film stars Lou Diamond Phillips as Richie Valens, Issei Morales, Rosanna DeSoto, Elizabeth Peña, and Daniel um, Von Zernick, mm. along with Joe Pantaliano. So the film depicts the impact of Valens' career, um, which he had on everyone's lives, especially that of his half-brother Bob Morales, his girlfriend Donna Ludwig, and the rest of his family. And in 2017, the film was selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry by the Library of Commerce no, by the Library of Congress mm. as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Aww. But once again, Hollywood has a way of not being 100% accurate. 
Sure. And it, here we go again. Cynthia explains it right here with the inaccuracies of the film. In, in, compared to the movie, uh, what were the things that they got wrong and what were the things that they got right in La Bamba? Because I know that some people, you know, the one thing I, I heard from a lot of individuals that, you know, of course, Lou Diamond Phillips, tall glass of water, handsome in his own right but he portrayed i mean they hired him to be you know to portray this icon and he was skinny and lanky and like you said like richie valens was like built and a little chubby and so that was one of the things that they got a little a little incorrect but were there any other i guess things in that movie that they got wrong about him and things that they got right well that's what um this lady i interviewed irene diaz with him she said that he was nothing like they he was portrayed in the movie i mean they obviously from the size and stuff but it, she didn't see it reflected his jolliness what a happy person he was and and how he interacted with other people she said that just didn't come through in the film oh, wow. and then yeah another person who was in the silhouettes with him he's always posting how much he hated La Bamba that it wasn't the Richie because he played he's the one that got him in the band that he was able to be discovered in and he said that just the stories didn't didn't add up and then the misportrayal of his brother um I hear that uh his brother was just like just as much as Richie but they kind of played him as you know somewhat of an alcoholic and kind of you know not so nice and and jealous which Perhaps there was some of that that might have been true, but this wasn't an, a- an accurate depiction of him according to the other people. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, lot of things that didn't jive. And, um, you know, it would be nice. I get people requesting for me, um, they want to know more about the real Richie. And I find that interesting because it makes me want to do a documentary on just things that I did from people just to be able to tell, his, you know, the story as, as everyone else saw it. Right. So... Right. That's the thing that we always talk about, too, is like Hollywood, they'll take a story and they just dissect it and then they'll give their own version of it. And I had like this feeling that even doing my research on on Richie Valens, I just felt like maybe they got something wrong. Most likely they got something wrong in that film. And and of course, like going through some of the um, interviews you went you had conducted with, you know, his uh, close friends and even people of the film. Um, it said a different tale through your documentary, your little mini documentary on Pacoima. So that, right. that was something right. like no. I had to reach out to you and like, you know, get the details about, cause I wanted to make sure we get this right. Of course, about his life and who he was as a person. Right. Well, and, and like I said, that, that film did not really depict him accurately, but you know, but you can see the interest in him, which, which is fascinates me. They just dedicated a portion of it to him last year and I was at that ceremony and oh my god the people that came out and and wanted you know just they couldn't get enough of information on Richie you know a friend of mine who's an author of uh, his book the first Latino rocker um, she was there and it just sold out of all of her books because people were just going crazy for Richie Valance you know? yeah I mean he was the forefather of rock and roll and not only that but he's also the forefather of Chicano rock. He really put, you know, Mexican-Americans, Mexican singers on the map where you have a voice and you can, you know, break into this industry 
I'm sorry to say this, but this almost whitewashed industry and be Mexican American and have a voice and, you know, sing your songs, which is so important and inspired so many other, you know, Hispanic and Mexican American performers, you know, and it branched other genres of music as well, which I found so fascinating in, in my research as well. Well, the really sad part about that and his culture was they actually changed his last name just so he yeah. wouldn't be Mexican. Mm-hmm. And that that's kind of hurtful that he couldn't stand on his own as a, a true Mexican-American that he had, you know, had to make people not know, you know, had to kind of uh, downplay it, you know. And that, that's kind of sad, but it helped him, you know, catapult him to the success that he ended up being. So there's good and bad in both of that aspect of it. So, yeah, leave it to Hollywood to add some inaccuracies. Yeah, I mean, I get it. Unfortunately, like, things that are based on a true story are, like, editorialized and narrativized, to make up a word. So, like, I think that's why we have documentaries. You know what I mean? Right. I do get it. People are like, oh, it wasn't like this or this. But at the end of the day, if a movie is based on something, then you know it's most likely going to be made for Hollywood. Whereas, like... right. Yeah, I don't want to watch a documentary that has falsities, but they serve different purposes. Like, yes, the purpose that it served definitely was to like let his legend move on definitely. and to teach people about his music. You know, and I would never try and like tell someone like, "Well, sorry that your family member's movie didn't like satisfy your needs," mm-hmm. but like I think as like a general viewing member of the public, I don't need like movies to be 100% accurate. That's why we have like other forms of like reporting and documentation. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, that, that's a tough one. Like whenever something says like based on a true story, I'm like, mm. Mm, is it really? <laughs> yes. But I'm happy to know that this film was directed by, you know, a Latino yep. with Latinos yep. about Latinos. Yep. You know what I mean? Huge. Especially, so, honestly, in the 80s, huge. Huge. Very huge. So here are a few facts that you guys probably didn't know about La Bamba, according to BuzzFeeds.com. Here are a couple little tidbits. So the film did not use the original songs sung by Richie Valens. Instead, the songs in the film were covered by the East LA-based band Los Lobos. And while it's stated in the film that Steve Ritchie's dad mm. drunk himself to death, the real Steven died from lifelong complications after coming into contact with mustard gas during the First World War. And another fact is uh, Ritchie's real-life mother, Concepcion Reyes, appeared in the film during the family's first party. And then she ends up passing away three months after the film's release. Mm. Richie's real-life sister, Connie Limos, was on set when the infamous coin toss scene was filmed, where Richie wins a mm. coin toss to fly alongside the Big Bopper and Buddy Holly. She ends up crying uncontrollably, and she throws herself at Lou Diamond Phillips, screaming, why did you have to go? Why did you have to mm-hmm. go? And according to Connie Limos, the film provided closure for the Venezuela family. They were finally able to accept and let go, mm-hmm. which is true because the family, his family were on set every single day of the shooting of the film. Yeah. And in even in uh, interviews with Lou Diamond Phillips, he was saying how the family would call him Richie. Mm. They wouldn't call him by his real name. They, they would say, Richie, you know, come over here, Richie, let's do this. And it was a good way for them to like have closure yeah you know because they were so young and they didn't understand death when they're you know you know little babies yeah. and they heard their older brother I mean, you know think about was, it, he's 17 yeah they're all all but one of his siblings are younger than him so it's just yeah. like oh 
and that like one day he's there and the next day he's gone mm-hmm. and they never see him again so mm-hmm. this brought a lot of closure That's i know sweet. that um a few years ago bob ends up passing away mm-hmm. bob morales so yeah now they're joined with you know richie mm-hmm. up in the big big heaven skies up there oh my yes <laughs> Hey, boo, hey, it's Bryce Mitchell-Williams. And Tammy Merhap Chavez. And we are from Holly Weird Paranormal. And we just wanted to take a second to recommend some great other podcasts that are available now on Stitcher Premium. If you're looking for some new true crime, then check out True Crime Garage Off the Record, the latest project from the guys of True Crime Garage, hosts Nick and the Captain. Hi. Join them each week as they revisit some of the most haunting cases they've covered to date. This is a compilation of hidden treasures, a chance to dive deeper, discuss new theories, and get updates on your favorite episodes of True Crime Garage. Or, if you're looking for something a little different, comedian Chris Gethard's beautiful stories from anonymous people opens the phone line to one anonymous caller, and Chris can't hang up first, no matter what. Just like all my first dates. From shocking confessions and family secrets to philosophical discussions and shameless self-promotion, anything can and will happen. With Stitcher Premium, you'll also get thousands of hours of original content, early access to new releases, exclusive bonus episodes, and archives, and so much more. And of course, our show, Hollyweird Paranormal, is also available every week on Stitcher Premium. To get your free month trial of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com and use promo code HOLLYWEIRD. That's stitcherpremium.com and the promo code is HOLLYWEIRD. One word. One word. Now let's get weird. Bye. Bye. Beep boop, beep boop, boop, boop. Boop. Keep that in there. I will. <laughs> <laughs> now we hit the paranormal aftermath, guys. Spooky. Very spooky. So, of course, spooky. when we talk about a specific individual or a place, is there a paranormal association? Mm. So, are there Richie Valens ghosts? And if so, has this apparition made its way back to his hometown? And here's what Crystal Jackson had to say. I was asking you, have you heard anything of a paranormal association with maybe the house on Fillmore? Um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would like to know, is there Rishi Valens ghosts around Pacoima? And according- I wish I had some stories with that. I haven't heard anything personally. I mean, I have other paranormal things that have happened in Pacoima. I mean, they have, you know, horseless people or they through the Indians, basically. Mm-hmm. I've heard stories, but I have not heard anything about any paranormal with you, Balance, but it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise you, yeah. We were looking into other areas in Iowa where they uh, were him, the Big Bopper, and Buddy Holly had their last performance. So there's some some stories right there, but I, we are not 100% that they are related to Richie Valens, but you did bring up a good point that the premonition of, of the crash and his death, that was, you know, I mean, we could pan it off as supernatural, paranormal. Absolutely, because, you know, he, he felt it. You know, you, you can't discount how, you know, how he just had this feeling uh, that there was something about airplanes that he didn't like. You know, he had the one instance, but he didn't like planes before that happened. That just kind of, you know, put icing on the cake and sealed like a plane, but he didn't like planes prior to that. But all of, you know, but like a lot of us as kids dealt with the, the planes over at Whiteman Airport, and we didn't think anything of them. Mm-hmm. But it affected Richie, you know, and he, and he expressed that to all his friends. So that, that I found, like, really interesting. 
that he had that premonition you know, ahead of time that there was something possibly going to happen with airplanes. And it's so sad because it ended up happening due to a, a coin toss with another musician when they were at the surf ballroom and they were supposed to fly to a different location and I guess pretty much his destiny, like his life was going to end that night, unfortunately. So right. The sad part about that was that I don't think he would have even done that had he had the flu. He had been sick because they were dealing with broken down heaters in their buses and people one person actually ended up with frostbite. You know, they're in Iowa in the snow, you know, and so it was, the conditions were miserable, and I, I wonder if he, if those conditions wouldn't have been that bad. Would he really have done that coin toss and got on the plane? You know, because if he would have been in good health, you know, and the situation was better, I have a feeling he would have jumped back on the bus and not on the plane. Right. But it was the circumstances, you know, surrounding it that actually got him to engage in that. So it's it's, it's kind of eerie, you know, but he, it he felt eerie. Yeah. it was just going to happen, you know, just whatever cosmic forces were just leading in that direction from from way back when. And he felt it. Mm-hmm. He felt it. But can you share with us maybe one of the biggest uh, ghost stories that may circulate around Pacoima that you know that you can share with our listeners? Well, I mean, a lot of people talk about Gravity Hill and there was a house. I don't, I don't know if you have you ever heard of Gravity Hill. No, I haven't. Okay, Gravity Hill. I went there as a teenager. Everybody, I think, in Bakoima has gone there. And when you go to Gravity Hill, you put your car in neutral, and the car pulls uphill. It's the weirdest sensation, and we've all done it, and it's still it's still there. And across from Gravity Hill is uh, what they call Pioneer Cemetery. It was a cemetery that Charles put there in 1874, but they stopped burying people there in 1930, but um, there's still some weird phenomena with that, and there's another home there that people say they believe is haunted. So there's there's some weird stuff in Bacoima, that's one of the many, but but the Gravity Hill is something, if you ever want to go do a broadcast from that and feel that sensation of how your car gets pulled backward. You know, you come, you go down to the bottom of the hill and the gravity pulls you up the hill when this car's in neutral. It's the weirdest sensation and you can't even understand how that happens. You know, that's one oh, of the, yeah. the biggest phenomenals. Phenomenal. Right that. <laughs> yeah. No, gravity Hill has been it's been there around forever. So oh it's just God. weird. And then, you know, then there was another instance where actually um, there was some flooding, uh, serious rains, and apparently there was coffins going down the hill. And, what? Uh, <laughs> oh, no. Well, yeah, cause the ground sat- was saturated from the rain, and, yeah, the coffins just started uh, rising, going down, and there was stuff on body parts later. Oh. Just weird. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. But, yeah, I had, I interviewed a lady that remembers uh, a time when that happened, so I was just like, "Wow!" <laughs> so there's there's some cool there's some cool little stories yeah, that Pacoima's um, <laughs> weird. Pacoima can be weird and interesting, folks. Go visit Pacoima. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know the the, the the problem is, you know the the mentality that people say, and you know the the news reporting and how awful it's supposed to be, and you know, but there's this other side that you can't even imagine. You know, you can't imagine all the, the great people that came out of there and the great stories 
and you know just the things that that were done and nobody hears that they just hear oh there was a drive-by shooting blah 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 and it's really sad because they're missing out on a lot of uh, great stories great information so i'm glad i was able to dig up some of them there's still way a lot more to be dug up but like i said some of them you know have some unsettled uh or auras about them (laughs) and like i I still think a lot of it stems back from the from the Indian story. You know, that's just my personal theory. I can't write about that. No, I, like, I, I believe there is an association, especially with that tribe, because, um, you know, I'm trying to research more on a location in Beverly Hills of Benedict Canyon. And um, Benedict Canyon, it was, uh, I wouldn't say it was inhabited by a specific tribe, but it was kind of like a common ground of transportation of roadways where different tribes would pass you know, in and out of, and, you know, it could, there could be an association to that, absolutely, I 100% agree, but. Well, yeah, when you piece the stories together, you know, you just, you just can't help but wonder, you know, you kind of mm-hmm. look at it, and you say, well, nothing concrete to say that this is related to that, but it still doesn't change the fact that, wow, you know, how did, how did all this happen, you know, how did, how well, unless for Bacoima, how could they have created so many, you know, Grammy and Emmy and, you know, NFL, M- Major, Major League Baseball, basketball, Harlem, Gold, Harlem Globetrotter people. I mean, we it's just the list is on and on. You know, sometimes I can't even remember them all because there's so many, you know, authors and, uh, you know, just, just great stuff, you know. And they say, well, how does that come from such a small area that's supposed to be so bad, <laughs> you know? It really isn't. <laughs> Appointment is definitely the murals. The murals are amazing. Yes, I'm looking um, at them online, and they're beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. Amazing. Yeah, the main, the only complaint people say about murals is that they're not all centrally, centrally located. You have to go to different, you know, yeah. spots. They're on the side of this building or that building, and they're not, you know, it's just not just one place you can go and see them all. But they're worth seeing. They're, you know, you just sense of this this talent the muralists are so talented and then you know the stories that these pictures tell just make you give a sense of what you know what Bokoima is all about well the stories that you were telling me I mean they gave me goosebumps and I mean you know it's not just a dot outside of Los Angeles it's it's a big community for my town it's truly amazing to me you know it's, it's just, it, it, I've been working on this um since 2015 is when I pretty much started and I, I'm still, my jaw still drops to this day when you know I, I really analyze the story and say, wow, how did this happen? Um, where can people <laughs> learn more about the history of Pacoima? Well, at this time, you know, of course the website, Pacoima Historical Society website has, has some bare minimum. The book and the film, Pacoima Stories Land of Dreams, um, that's available um, online at PacoimaStories.com and then the book will be coming out in a few months, and that you know goes in a little bit deeper into those stories, the same stories that are in the book, and then a little bit more than that. So those are the two main things, and then I'm building up um, more and more to make it more available. We have Bacoima History Day once a year where you can come out and look at the exhibits and learn a little bit more. But, um, you know, we're growing, we're growing it little by little. Are you the mayor by, by any chance of Bacoima? you should be absolutely your passion is just so amazing it's it's so awesome and 
And I mean, that's so great that you're writing like this book and it's, you know, it's almost ready to come out. We definitely want to get a copy. I, I can't help but be excited about it. And I, you know, I just, I just want this to keep, to keep going. And I couldn't, I couldn't let the film just be a one-off, you know, it had, because there's still so much more to tell. And, you know, the reaction I get from the, the followers on Facebook, everyone that was from the town loves the town. You know, you have a handful of people that have bad experiences, but the overwhelming majority um, love the stories. And they're proud of just to have something to be proud of after hearing so much negative stuff. And I'm happy to bring that to people because I, you know, I, I was born there, but I actually left Pacoima. I left the valley, you know, a while back and moved to Northern California. Yeah, and that's when it hit me because the whole time I lived there, I wasn't embarrassed to say I was from Pacoima because people kind of looked at you like, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're low class. You know, they, they don't look at you the same when you, you said you were from Pacoima. But once I moved away, I was proud, you know, because nobody had heard of it for one, but I was proud. And I put it, when Facebook started in 2010, I put, that's my hometown, Pacoima. You know, that's where I was born. And that's what triggered me to actually do because I'm like, I gotta know, because I had a, there was a feeling in that town, you, you felt the, the community. You know, my, me and my great-grandmother used to walk down Fillmore Street to this uh, Roman's Market, and it, you felt like you were at home. You knew all the neighbors. You knew everyone. You had relatives on every street. It was just, you know, just a feeling that my kids never have, you know, and I recognize that. And I'm like, I gotta tell this story. I gotta try to let people understand what the, you know, what this So there's really Ugh. no confirmation on apparition of Richie mm. Valens or anything, but she did give us some pretty juicy Pacoima legends. I'm just so obsessed with this like real life Leslie Nope mm-hmm. champion of Pacoima. Like Crystal, you rock. Like you this do. I love like her love of Pacoima exactly. is so 
tangible and like ah oh, I love it so much just like yeah this city isn't like what the media tells you it is exactly it's not like what you hear on the news it's not like a bad part of LA like we've talked about this so many times but like at the end of the day LA is like all these cities that just grew so quickly and merged into this like monstrosity that is now called Los Angeles but like they have the like individual histories and flavor and like yes. culture and like service to Thank the community you. and like I Thank love you. her like quest to preserve appointment. Yeah. Like I, I'm so touched by that. We need people like Crystal, yes. you know? And, and and I don't mean to get on a tangent or no, a girl, rant before I, I head I head into like more stories of the paranormal aftermath. The, but one thing that really freaking ticks me mm-hmm. off is when people tell me there's no culture in Los Angeles. Oh yeah. Fuck you there is. <laughs> Sorry, not sorry. Here's let me let me walk. Here's my list. Um, number one, what was the real reason why you came here? Entertainment. Mm-hmm. It's what everybody comes every day for. It's what I am always caught in traffic because I'm being you know stuck behind a rental car with like mm-hmm. lost tourists. They all want to come and see the Hollywood Walk of Fame. They want to see you know where Pretty Woman was shot and all this stuff. That's one one of them is just like entertainment. Mm-hmm. Second, traffic. That's what you experience when you get out of LAX after, like, how many hours? Traffic is a culture. Third is surfing. We have surfing Mm -hmm. here in the OC, Venice. And if you go to San Jose, you'll learn the history of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't stand it when people tell me there's no culture. Fuck you, there is. Also, like, the mission. Like, if you do even, like, a little research into the history of the missions, like, it's fucking fascinating. Yes. LA would not be here without the missions and, like, their bloody, bloody history. Like, it's... That such a too. tapestry of like beauty and chaos woven into like this now Southern California city sphere. Like exactly, we've got culture, and like let's talk about food. Good luck trying to get any produce anywhere <laughs> else in the country. Exactly in the quote off month. We don't have an off month. Like you want good food, you come here. You come here, guys. There's good food everywhere. Mm-hmm. If you go to Little Mexico, there's a bunch of places there. Mm-hmm. You go to we have a little Tokyo, aka Japangelis. We have Koreatown. We have mm-hmm. Chinatown. We have little Armenia. Hell, we even have a little Ethiopia. Oh God, I had that's so funny. They bring that up. I just had Ethiopian food for the first time. Yeah, on a date. Well, Oops. Uh, <laughs> mind blowing. I don't know how I've lived my life. Off a so miracle long. mile, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to know what happened though? Oh, God, I like went to take a bite and it's all very like spiced. Mm-hmm. And I like breathed in as I was taking a bite and the powder like went into my lungs and I spent the rest of the night like hacking up a lot. Oh, no. <laughs> Needless to say, I'm still single. Yeah, crush it. What else? We have like Little India and yep. Gardena. We have Filipino town. Yep. I mean, to my fellow Filipino listeners, guys, yes. call me up. We'll have, you know, a date to the Jolly Bee and have Oof. a hollow, hollow yes. man. Mm. Yes. And how can we forget the biggest culture of them all? Los Dodgers. Yeah. Okay. Oh, God. I'm wearing, like, look at me. I'm wearing know, the I Los Angeles it. Dodgers shirt. I love this baseball team. Mm. Everyone loves the baseball team here. Bring 88 back. That is a freaking culture. Vince yeah. Scully, that man is part of that culture. The people that live here in the communities, immigrants, everyone, mm-hmm. they're, they make up the city. Mm-hmm. And this is why I love doing this podcast because in some weird way, I feel like it's like our love letter, this little haunted love letter yeah. to this weird, crazy city that keeps us here it's just like any city like if you look at it like crystal was saying if you look at what the news or the media or the portrayal tells you it just looks like this one thing but if you do even just like a little bit of exploration you Mm -hmm. discover like such a rich tapestry like 
I don't know. I, I, I agree. We kind of bitch about it a lot, but I do love this like stupid city. <laughs> <laughs> we do. We love you, LA. And I get goosebumps every time yes. I go on Blueberry Podcasting, our hosting site. Word up to Blueberry. What up, girl? But every time I go on there, our number one downloads come from California love in it. US states. And our number one downloads from US metro cities come out of Los Angeles. That. And that to me means the world. And also, no one likes talking about Angelinos and listening to them as much as Angelinos. So, exactly. like, I get it. I get it. Second on that <laughs> list, Bryce, is Ohio. Come on, Ohio. <laughs> Buckeyes. Look, but it's because everyone in Ohio fled to LA. So, <laughs> there you, it's true. It's true. Or the moon. See, there's a reason why people come here, and that is because yeah. it's the culture, folks. Yeah. We have culture. Open a book, go talk yeah. to people, <laughs> go to Pacoima. There you go. First of all, you rock. You rock. All right, guys. Let's so talk about here's some let's talk about some ghosts, guys. We got some Pacoima ghosts coming up soon because I have a little tidbit about Gravity Hill. But first off, in relation to the crash, there's a show called Dead Famous. Yes. So um, it starred psychic and medium Chris Fleming, and he had done an investigation at the Surf Ballroom in Iowa. So that was the location of the like mm-hmm. before the crash where they did their last concert, mm-hmm. Surf Ballroom. I love that it's still standing. It's still standing, and every year they do a memoriam for them. They have a huge festival and concert. So according to their investigation, in the ballroom, Fleming and another psychic picked up on an energy from what they believed to be Richie Valens. Mm. According to them in the show, they felt a warm presence and the sense of being under a spotlight and feeling that warmth of the spotlight. Mm. They also heard footsteps and had seen shadow figures backstage by the green room. The green room is a very interesting location because that's where all the musicians left their signatures on the Mm. wall. And you can see Buddy Holly's, Big Boppers, and Richie's signature on the wall. Workers who've worked in the surf ballroom have even mentioned that they could hear music even when the, the ballroom is closed. I love that. One gentleman in particular mentioned a story that he was closing up and he heard music coming from the green room. And when he went backstage, it was like completely pitch black, empty and dark. Mm. So my theory on this is that they do the winter dance party festival Mm. there. That's the festival that they bring Donna Ludwig Fox to meet the fans. I think when you bring those people... They honor these three musicians. It's like they're, you know, keeping their memories and also their spirits alive. So, you know, this is the place that they're probably most familiar with. And this is the last place where they, you know, were in front of 1,500 people, you know? You know what I love, too, is I, in almost every theater that I've ever worked in, I always try and, like, take a moment to myself to, like, say goodbye to the space. Mm -hmm. Um because you never really know when you're going to be like acting again. Right. You never really know when you're going to be performing again and you never really know when you're going to be in a space again. And I the two in particular, ironically, at the theater that I worked at in Indiana, we did the Buddy Holly musical, which is a really beautiful show. Oh yeah, I've and, seen um, that. It was such a special experience in general cuz that cast was so lovely. Um but I remember uh, both at the Academy, ironically, when I was there as a company member, mm-hmm. after our showcase, I just went into the theater. You know how you can like walk back through the back uh-huh. and then like kind of come out through the theater. And I just like stood on the stage. There's a point to the story, I promise. Um, <laughs> and I just stood on the stage and kind of like thanked the space for the year I had had. And I did that when I was leaving Indiana as well um, to the wagon wheel. Um, and 
there's this weird phenomenon for me that happens where you really feel almost like a movie voiceover of like all the moments that have happened in that theater in the silence mm-hmm. and you it, it you really can like hear yourself saying and experiencing those lines and those moments that you had had on that oh, stage space and so like to me you know I'm definitely a bit more skeptical or a wash if you will when it comes to like the paranormal but whenever we talk about like haunted Theaters, theater episode yeah. and when we talk about like this particular space yes. like it makes so much sense to me that like people you know they always talk about like when we're in that space right. you can hear the music whether that means they're hearing the actual apparitions or just the energy of nostalgia or just the magic of performance itself I very much understand like what that feels like Mm -hmm. because I've experienced it like oh right like when you're in a space for the last time you really can like viscerally experience the past of the performance 100% yeah I love that that like every year they celebrate they celebrate that and here's the thing guys and this is my theory Mm. our theory actually Mm -hmm. why spaces like this hold energy Mm -hmm. theaters music halls why they seem to be haunted is because it's simple yeah the stage absorbs everything period it absorbs every single emotion Mm -hmm. every single emotion from the musician the backup bands and the fans that's a lot of energy there Mm -hmm. and that night that was a sold-out show yeah that was 1500 people in that one space so you can imagine you know all the stress of the tour them Mm -hmm. being sick that all goes away when you're on stage mm-hmm. and they played their hearts out and you know maybe in some different universe a part of them revisits mm-hmm. that and a part of them comes back for that celebration that yeah. they do every year which i find very beautiful i love that now let's travel a few miles down to the site of the crash Ooh. and that's clear lake so clear lake residents report seeing this is what they report they see a phantom plane in the area and ghostly lights are often seen in the field. Mm. Now, Jeff Nicholas, who is the former, no, who is the farmer that now owns the Iowa field that played site of the crash, mm. stated in an interview with Dead Famous that you can feel the significance and understanding of the musicians who died here. The field is identical to the night of the crash, and you get a sense of what they felt moments before the crash. Mm. Nicholas also stated that there are times when he is working in the fields late at night that he feels a sense of anxiety followed by a sense of sadness. Mm. Paranormal investigators have traveled to the cornfield to conduct paranormal investigations with their spirit box and they came up with um, a couple of astounding evidence through the spirit box sessions. Some that are pretty eerie and pretty remarkable. So they collected voices through the spirit box. Sorry, what's a spirit box? So a spirit box is a tool that they use to um, pretty much communicate with any energy or spirit Mm. through these radio waves with words. Whoa. So it catches those words and it communicates them out of the box. Got it. Yeah. So I don't know if you've seen paranormal um, shows, but you kind of see them in one you know instance of their investigation where they have this little voice box and it's spewing out all this white noise yeah. and then you hear these little words that yeah. come out and it's catching all these radio frequencies yeah. that's what a spirit box Got is it. so um they've collected voices from that field saying the words music guitar 
concert, holly, crash, and cold. (laughs) (laughs) So that is the paranormal association with those two locations. Now, in reference to Crystal Jackson's um, local legends of Pacoima, last weekend I went to Pacoima and I traveled to Gravity Hill by Cagle Canyon. Alone, for everyone that's wondering. No, I did not go there. (laughs) And I did try to find the place where you can put your car in neutral. So someone on the message board mentioned like it's a few meters or it's a few feet away from this um, Jewish cemetery. It's the entrance. It's right right around there. And I kept on, you know, putting my car in neutral and I kept on going backwards. I'm like, I'm not moving forward. I'm looking like an idiot compared to these cars that are like traveling back and forth. But I could not find it. But I will say this. When I was around that canyon, I don't know if it's the elevation, Mm -hmm. but I felt like my equilibrium was completely thrown off. Mm -hmm. Which is funny. Actually, when you mentioned that earlier uh, today, the first thing I thought of was that was how you were affected at the house at the in, omen house yes like right away you were like oh my i'm like feeling really dizzy i'm like yeah. that's i wonder if that's like your tell for lack of a better word or like your key into it you know what i mean my intuition yeah, oh absolutely yeah. because it's like it's not like when i right when i walked into david's house yes so david's house for those who don't know um david's house is what we call the haunted house in beverly hills it's 150 feet away from the sharon tate mm-hmm. murders the location of where the murders occurred and a and what we believe is that his house sits on a geometric anomaly that attracts a lot of this energy mm-hmm. from the canyon and possibly from the murder site. Mm-hmm. So there is this room in his basement where people walk in and you can instantly feel dizzy. Mm-hmm. And every time I walk in that room, it's like, I get really dizzy. Yeah. I feel off. And that was like exactly what happened to me. Mm-hmm. I felt really off when I was in that area. And according to a story on on a message board through the Historical Society of Pacoima, because Crystal did this amazing thing of asking people about, you know, local legends, there is this one person that said, yeah, you know, when I was young, my my dad took me to Gravity Hill. He put his car in neutral. We went uphill. We were supposed to go downhill. But then I remember seeing these weird shadow figures by the Jewish cemetery. No. <laughs> and it's a creepy little cemetery. Uh, they all are. They all are, but this one looked a little creepy. <clears throat> so, yeah, and then there was another one from the message board. And for those who are tuning in from Pacoima, okay, Hi. is it old man goat or old man ghost? So there's a tale that a lot of these um, individuals stated that when they were growing up, they remember seeing this old man and he looked like a ghost. And if you go to his front yard, he'll come out screaming at you. And I think he had a goat or he had goats and people would go over there and kind of mess with the goats and Mm. he would run out yelling and screaming at you and chase you down a hill. Yes, I've read the Harry Potter books. Go on. (laughs) So I want to know if it's old man goat or old man ghost and let me know your tales, guys. Just email us at hollyweirdparanormal at gmail. So that is our episode of the life and afterlife of Richie Valens, guys. Just to forewarn you, we are not professionals. You know, we did our best to research and we reached out to crystal jackson i would say if you want a professional go to crystal jackson get her i'm obsessed with her yes i love her her book um watch her documentary you can find it on historical society of org. it's there it's 
a wonderful work of art what she's done with that documentary and i'm sure her book is going to be very amazing yes. so watch out for that guys so if you love hollywood paranormal we'd love for you to subscribe rate and give us a review on itunes it really helps us out a lot and it helps us become a little more visible and if you can't get enough hollywood paranormal then stalk us on instagram and facebook at hollywood paranormal and twitter at hwp podcast if you have a story that you're dying to share no pun intended then huh. email us at hollywoodparanormal at gmail.com you can catch up with our past episodes on blueberry apple podcasts google podcasts stitcher soundcloud google play Castbox, and player fm and spotify we're everywhere we are everywhere and if you really are a fan of our podcast guys and you want to donate help us out a little bit then you can do so by traveling on over to our patreon page which is www.patreon.com forward slash hollyweird paranormal and there you can find our little page our little donate section and you you can donate as little as one dollar a month or just for that one month whatever you want mm-hmm. So it does help us out a yes, lot. It, does. it helps us pay for our hosting site. And we're actually saving up for better equipment since people keep on reminding us that um, we need to be professional sound engineers and we need <laughs> to invest more on expensive sound equipment. Um, but we do live in Los Angeles, so yeah. all that money goes to rent, guys. <laughs> I don't on. know. We're going to start recording on our phones. I know. Seriously. <laughs> seriously. But yes, guys. Um we really loved doing this episode. Yes. Um, I am a huge fan of Richie Valens. Has always been a fan when I was young. I mean, I remember watching La Bamba, but I yeah. also remember my parents playing his music. Mm-hmm. And that will forever be imprinted in my mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything you want to say, Bryce? Just keep on congratulating ourselves for not singing any of the songs. Good for us. <laughs> <laughs> How do you pronounce Brooklyn? Yeah, right. (laughs) Here we go. All right, guys. Till next time. Stay Holly weird. Music currently playing by Mikhail Moronov. Music at the top of the episode was by Chill Hop. We wanted to take the time to thank our patrons. With your donations and your support, you guys help produce this episode. So thank you so much for all your love and support. Also, a huge thank you to Cynthia Jackson, head of the Historical Pacoima Society. If you love Hollyweird Paranormal or want to learn more about us, head on over to hollyweirdparanormal.blueberry.net. And to our friends and to the city of Pacoima, stay Hollyweird. Till next time, friends. <laughs>